hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least what's a weekly aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 244, we preview the July and August issue of Retinal Physician for 2020. I'm joined by Drs. Priya Vakaria and Sriji Patel for this episode, where we review topics, starting with controversies in vitreoretinal surgery, including shaving of the vitreous base for retinal detachments. We also discuss uh, low vision devices and low vision applications for our patients, uh, outcomes with central retinal vein inclusion with treatment with anti-VGF, and finally, a brief discussion of telemedicine. As always, you can find a list of financial disclosures in the episode description. You can also claim CME credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes on our by clicking on the link in the episode description. That will take you to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website to claim CME. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by two colleagues on this wonderful Father's Day evening. Uh, first in alphabetical order, Dr. Shriji Patel from Vanderbilt University. Shriji, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jay. And next in alphabetical order, Dr. Priya Bakaria from Washington, D.C., Retina Group of Washington. Priya, welcome for your first ever retinal physician preview. Woohoo! Hello, Jay. Thanks for having I know. me. We're so excited. This is the preview of the July slash August versions. We won't have one of these coming back until September, which seems like it's years away given how long the last three months have felt. Um, but we're on Labor Day time. So, uh, as usual for retinal physician articles, you can find the articles online at retinalphysician.com. They're all available there for free. And our goals here are not to go through every little detail in the articles. They're all available for you to read them, but to use the topics of the article as a jumping off point for discussion. So the first article we're going to discuss was edited by Michael Colicello and was called Shaving the Vitreous Base and Vitrectomy for Regmatogenous Retinal Detachment. What makes for the perfect shave? In the con- And so, again, they kind of go through just kind of basic things that we've talked about before, the types of surgery to use, vitrectomy or buccal vitrectomy, and then the reattachment being driven mostly by proliferative vitreoretinopathy. And then they have different kind of authors comment on shaving and, and how important it is for regmatonic retinal detachment. Here, uh, Justin Ehlers comes in with a commentary about this. So one of the interesting questions, Priya, that's always brought up is how much does shaving actually help? And there's some study results saying that limited shave patients can still have quite a good outcome, uh, but there are many of us who still will shave. And then I think Dr. Ehlers makes a great point that I think the average surgeon kind of varies the amount that they shave depending on the pathology uh, and depending on what they find during surgery, it's not necessarily something you go with a formed idea, though you'll certainly hear people on the podium advocate both ways. So, Bria Bakaria, what do you do in terms of vitreous base shaving? Does it vary in a phacic versus pseudovacic patient? Does it vary if you have a buckle or you don't have a buckle? What's your approach? That's a great question, Jay. And I've actually found this has changed throughout time for me. Uh, when I uh, left fellowship and I had my first cases, I was very particular about having a very close vitreous shave. In fact, on every single phacic patient, regardless of what kind of pathology they had, I would put on a buckle specifically so that I could get a really good shave uh, because uh, I primarily operate at a center where I don't have a skilled assistant. And so specifically for phacic patients, you know, initially I was, I was doing that. But now I found as, as time has gone on and I've done more cases, 
um, you know, I, I do find that even without a buckle and, and even in pseudophagic detachments, our wide field visualization is so good and our fluidics can be so controlled on the vitrector that oftentimes I'm just doing um, peripheral vitrectomies and getting a close shave, but, but without scleral depression. And, and, you know, on, on certain cases where if I think to myself, hey, this, this might have benefited from a pneumatic, you know, maybe I'm shaving less and less as time goes on. But I still think that, you know, you, you it's always tough to leave a case leaving vitreous behind. So I still tend to shave cases as much as I possibly can. But, but as time goes on, I'm becoming less um, vigilant about this. It's interesting that you brought up pneumatic retina epilepsy because one of the points uh, Dr. Ehlers made when he wrote this, and, and one of the points I heard, and it's interesting to think about, Shriji, is people say, well, we focus, some, some authors focus very much on shaving the base or removing traction from the break, for example. But, for example, a horseshoe tear that's caught before a detachment, we don't remove the, the flap traction, we just barricade it. And if you do a pneumatic retina epilepsy, you're not removing the traction either, and you're living substantial vitreous, and you can still have pretty good outcomes in terms of single procedure success. So what, how do you kind of incorporate that when you're deciding to shave? Because the thing I struggle with is I do hear that, but then I wonder whether things change by, quote unquote, violating the vitreous, by going in and doing a vitrectomy, by changing the way the rest of the vitreous will behave in the future versus just simply a pneumatic or a, a buckle, for example, where, again, we're not moving any of the vitreous. Yeah, I think uh, some of the information that's come out recently is showing that definitely vitreous um, you know, complete vitreous removal may not be critical. I am agreeing. I agree with um, your kind of recent suggestion that, in general, if you're starting to remove the vitreous, I tend to try and remove the majority of it, especially with um, a peripheral shave. I think part of that is the fluid dynamics in the eye once you remove the vitreous and the loss of the internal tamponade of vitreous, you know, especially if uh, you're concerned about micro breaks or smaller peripheral breaks. And so, um, you know, part of this also is a function logistically. I do always have um, a fellow with me in the operating room, so one of us is always able to press 360. One of the points that Justice brings up is it's important that we do do a squill depressed exam during these types of cases. So I'm doing that regardless, and so I tend to um, be a little bit more uh, meticulous when it comes to shaving the periphery, and frequently I'll find small little breaks or areas of thinning that I want to go ahead and apply a laser to. And in general, I, in my hands, I feel like it is helpful in terms of um, some of the other complications that can be had with um, too much residual vitreous, the most concerning being uh, PVR. And the thing that's interesting, right, is the, I think for RDs, you have to have a long timeline because the thing I worry about is if I leave substantial residual vitreous, maybe it's not an issue now, but is this eye going to develop a detachment in one or three or five or even 10 years? And that's the same time I think you think about pneumatic or I think any study has got to have a long kind of timeline because in general, a lot of these patients aren't uh, elderly. You know, we have a lot of middle-aged patients, for example, who have detachments and the goals of surgery vary and people argue about the goals of single success versus number needed to treat to increase your single success rate versus final kind of reattachment rate. But I think that for many patients, they would ideally not want to, and for surgeons, we don't want them to have a recurrence, even if it's a late recurrence. And there are a lot of the studies with longer follow will show there are late recurrences of detachments. The other thing is, you know, I also have a fellow helping me, so I do end up shaving quite a bit. Um, my philosophy with it is, is kind of, well, it doesn't take me that much longer to do it. So maybe if it helps and adds a little bit of a success rate. But I will say, 
I do think that you there are certain cases you'll find that if you try to remove the vitreous too aggressively at the vitreous base, if it's an abnormally inserted base or a broad base, you really you can never get the vitreous completely off the base. That's why it's called a shave. You're just trimming it down. And in some of those patients, by trimming, you're actually just ripping the retina sometimes. And, and that's kind of a judgment call when you're in there. And uh, I'm sure there's many more experienced surgeons who listen to this or who are nodding their heads or even have different thoughts on that. Um, but I will, I am also a little more aggressive if I don't have a buckle personally, just because my thought process is, well, if, if I can get the gel out again with A, without causing a lot of time consumption, which will affect later parts of the case because you want to be efficient and, you know, not have things like your lens or cornea cloud up because you're spending 30 minutes doing something. But B, if it's not causing any iatrogenic issues, then I'll continue. And the rare case where it's not really, basically what I tell my fellows is if, if you you're kind of not achieving what you need to achieve, but you're causing more harm than good, and you've got to kind of reassess whether or not you should be doing it. And that's why it's kind of maybe important to have that flexibility case to case. Uh, Priya, any thoughts? I mean, I completely agree. I think that, um, you know, if, if you're, and I think there's a wide variation of what different surgeons believe is a shave. You know, I think that um, a very aggressive shave, though, can cause problems, and especially if you have a uh, patient has just all superior pathology and then you cause inferior pathology, that could be more problematic than leaving a little bit of a, a vitreous skirt behind. I think in general right now, because we don't have good treatments for PDR, um, at least currently, I think there's there's no downside to shaving the vitreous base as long as you're doing it safely and, and um, as long as you're not causing iatrogenic breaks or causing a lot of other pathology. Um, but as time goes on, and, and uh, you know, Michael Colicelli uh, points this out in his uh, article as well, that as time goes on and we get better treatments for PDR, our approach to this may significantly change. Right. And, and I think one other important point, which he, we're all kind of assuming this, and the author's assuming this, is this is assuming that you're also ensuring there's a posterior vitreous detachment and that you're moving vitreous that maybe still attached to the retina posteriorly. Um, we're talking more of if you do have a PVD and you're getting that shave done. So, um, Sriji, any thoughts before we move on to the next art article? Uh, no, I think... Uh, this is a, a good synopsis. It kind of highlights the fact that we really don't know. We tend to rely on the things that we were taught and the things that um, have worked out well for us. But um, we see this is one example of several examples where we typically rely on tradition and evidence maybe lacking, or we just kind of uh, do what makes us feel most comfortable um, and hope for good outcomes. Well, the next article is called Helping Patients Maximize Low Vision Technology and Smart Devices. Subtitle, Retina Specialists are Part of the Solution by Dory Rush, who's a contributing writer. Um, I thought this was a great summary, and, and it's really interesting to kind of look at all the little technologies coming from these different companies in the article. If you look at the article, there's, you know, different kind of thoughts on whether older patients will use technology. And I think probably our perception of how much older patients use technology is underestimating how often they use, and they go into those numbers a little bit. And it, it's kind of... Interesting. She talks as a person diagnosed with star guards and with count fingers, vision in both eyes, the things that have an iPhone, for example, has allowed her to do. And, and so we talked about low vision in the past in terms of, okay, there's, you know, you can go to a low vision specialist, get magnifiers, telescopes, these sort of things. But a whole new world kind of opens when you look at these apps that are available. And I think a lot of times we don't really talk about this. Our patients find in maybe we should have kind of formal instruction for our patients who have poor vision, like our macular end-stage macular generation patients or patients with severe diabetic retinopathy in both eyes. Priya, you read this and, and you kind of commented before we started recording that you thought this was super interesting. Of these things that you saw, what was kind of the most interesting or useful of the devices you saw from these different companies? 
Yeah, Jay. So I read this and I was just blown away. And it might just be because it's so simple and so easy. And the technology is technology that patients have. And it's something that I just never thought about. Um, we ha- I have a lot of elderly patients who have poor vision from a variety of causes. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for them to see a low vision specialist. And, and I thought that some of these apps were just purely phenomenal, especially these artificial intelligence apps. You know, there are certain apps here, um, and I'm not going to name them all by name, but uh, several apps where they have uh, artificial intelligence to help patients with low vision function. And not only that, they have live human agents that can be tapped in um, and basically can be connected to your phone. And those live human agents can help you kind of navigate whatever situation it is that you're doing. And I thought that that was just incredible. You know, it really allows these patients to have a level of independence that I think low vision aids simply cannot provide them. And um, I I thought that this, you know, one of the inherent biases we have is that our elderly patients may not be able to access this technology, but more and more as as technology, as as we're becoming more reliant on technology, our elderly patients, I think, absolutely can use this. And this is something I'm actually going to try to play around with um, and actually maybe show my patients in the clinic or show their family members. I think think this is incredibly, this is just something that's very accessible to patients and, and could provide a lot of support for them. Sriji, your comments? Yeah, I was actually quite impressed by um, how accessible a lot of this technology is. The author really points to the fact that the iPhone has become her primary tool for interacting with the world um, in the setting of low vision. And, you know, the iPhone's pretty ubiquitous. A lot of my patients carry around um, iPhone or I think similar um, level smartphones. And they may not realize just how much power they have in their hands to navigate the world, especially, you know, um, as Priya points out, a lot of our patients do suffer from decreased vision in one or both eyes. And the definition for low vision is pretty broad, so I think a lot of patients would benefit from it. Patients may not necessarily be speaking up to the difficulties they're having, um, and sometimes you know, getting into low vision can be difficult or the aids may appear too expensive um, or just not particularly applicable to their day-to-day life. Um, but it appears that there's a lot more options than there may have been even just a few years ago and a lot of uh, exciting things on the horizon, too, that um, appear uh, to be portable and hopefully cost-effective, too. You know, I, I just wonder, I always try to learn something that you can apply to life, and I think it's important to educate individual patients, but I almost wonder, and I, I forgive my ignorance if this is already happening in certain parts of the country, but I know locally here this hasn't happened, and obviously this is a secondary concern now with coronavirus and everything that's going on, but I just wonder if, you know, Apple has these classes, for example, they'll have for people at the Apple store where they'll they'll teach kids, for example, robotics or adults how to use their iPad or Apple and get more out of it. And they do these free kind of classes. It's kind of part of the experience at the local Apple stores, at least here. Uh, and I, I think that's probably true nationally. And I just wonder if, if iInstitute should pair up. It doesn't have to be Apple or, or Google or any of these companies that I have zero disclosures with. But, you know, it, it, the idea of just being like, I feel like, this is an opportunity to partner here, right? Like really we should have these people, I mean, we can learn how to do it too, but we should be get. they should be have, having specific classes for patients with low vision to use these facilities. And it could be conducted jointly by someone who actually teaches these classes regularly, along with someone who's either a low vision specialist or an ophthalmologist or somebody who has some perspective on what would be helpful. And I just wonder if we formalize this, right? This would probably be useful. 
Um, and, and if maybe in a, a post coronavirus world that could be done remotely or digitally, I just sometimes it's hard to reach people because again, if they don't know how to use their low vision devices to get on their phone or get on the internet, then they're not going to be able to see or hear what you want them to see or hear in terms of learning how to use it. That's the irony of this in terms of access. But anyway, just brainstorming after reading this, that was one of the things I thought of is, are there ways to kind of implement this on a, mo a more large scale so that it's not just simply, hey, you're making a difference for one or two patients, which is important, but you can actually reach a whole group of people and offer them support. I absolutely agree. And, and the author actually points out that currently there are accessibility support lines through all of these phone companies or technology companies. But I think you bring up a great point that having an in-person session is an incredible idea. And again, this is, this is technology that everybody's using. And there's also less of a stigma around it when you tailor someone's iPad to serve their visual function rather than having them carry around, you know, a telescope or some other device that makes them uh, become a lot, you know, it makes them stand out a lot more. Well, the next article we're going to talk about is about anti-vegetotherapy and macular edema due to retinal vein occlusion by Thomas Chula. Subtitle, Real World Outcomes Differ from Those of Clinical Trials. And he talks a little bit about how retinal specialists are using anti-vegetotherapy to treat patients with DRVOs and CRVOs, you know, the different medications we've talked about at length um, in terms of anti-vegetotherapy treatments and kind of looking at my DMR data versus and comparing it to clinical trial data to see how are these drugs actually used and what are the visual outcomes in real life. And it's surprising that it there are this has been shown with AMD as well. And he, there's a very nice graph in here showing kind of what is the the real world analysis versus the trials in terms of the letters gained. And we don't seem to win as much vision in real world trials for any of our major conditions, BRVO and CRVO, DME, AMD. But it's really kind of stark, especially for RVO, where in Bravo, especially vibrant for BRVO, Cruz, Copernicus case, and Galileo for CRVO. These huge letter gains for these patients. And then in the real world, we just don't seem to achieve it in the same way, regardless of the medication we're using. So it's interesting to kind of think about and why that isn't probably under treatment is a large part of it. Sriji, you know, I struggle with this too. And I found actually over time, I've started being more aggressive in terms of not extending my RVO patients as rapidly especially the central retinal vein occlusions, there's some evidence that they lose vision over time, and whether that's from under treatment or vascular remodeling over time. But I am concerned that sometimes these patients will get gaps in treatment. For example, coronavirus has exemplified this. They'll come back with edema, and the vision doesn't necessarily come back to where it was before at the baseline the same way. What has been your experience using anti-VEGF for RBO? So, Jay, you, th you bring up um, some good points. We've all seen that it works quite well in terms of resolving edema and assuming there's not a lot of um, ischemia associated with the initial vein occlusion, these patients typically do quite well. Um, we've definitely seen data to show that early and often is important for these RVO patients. You know, delays in treatment and lags in treatment not only result in recurrent edema, but they never really fully catch up to the patients that were treated aggressively early on. So I kind of side with you. I, I treat these patients pretty aggressively. I've learned from mistakes in terms of extending RVO patients either um, too quickly or uh, uh, in too much duration. So I tend to keep a close watch on them and slowly inch them out. Um, in terms of you know this data, I agree. It's very compelling. I think that uh, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of why our results don't really match up with 
um, the major clinical trials that kind of set the stage for our treatment regimens. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, one of the things that they point out in the article is vision checking and just, you know, I see it all the time. Vision checking can be pretty unreliable outside of a, you know, ETDRS clinical trial setting. And that could certainly be playing a role. The frequency and the, the, you know, in clinical trials, obviously patients come really regimented intervals and you have people that are dedicated to keeping them on track. I'll see people for lots of reasons, coronavirus being obviously the most um, common recent reason not coming in or unable to come in, and that can certainly contribute to their visual decline over time. And so it's definitely um, it's a much more complex situation. There are a lot of variables that kind of reflect why we see this data, but it's important to understand because this is how we counsel our patients. I don't think that um, quoting the trials is necessarily going to give them an accurate reflection of what their results could be. Priya, your thoughts? I completely agree with Sriji. Uh, every time I read articles like this, it just further supports the need to, to treat these patients aggressively. And, you know, I also find myself counseling patients differently in clinic. I, I started out, you know, I'm a treat and extend person, so I would start out letting them know that we had to inject them, but that I was going to try to minimize their overall number of injections and um, really try to see them as few times per year and inject them as few times per year. But as I learn more and more about how much, you know, in real life we're under treating, I now have kind of changed my tune to telling patients that, you know, the best outcomes are with aggressive treatment and um, that although injections are not fun, that will potentially lead to better long-term visual acuity and better visual acuity gains. And um, I think, you know, it's definitely a balance. I think that patients in real life, don't want injections and don't want to come in. So this just highlights the need for more durable agents and longer acting agents, which kind of negate that, that balancing act and make it easier to just provide the best care while still limiting the number of injections. You know, I, these patients, as I said, I, I've been treating them more aggressively and, and I've run into, I have some patients, for example, who snowbird in Miami, uh, but they don't snowbird from the North. They snowbird from South America where they don't, necessarily get treatment. They'll go there for a couple months and come back and forth, and it makes treatment challenging. And, and one of the things, I'm not a huge um, corticosteroid user, especially if anti-VEGF is working, but I have a couple of few patients who, for example, I'll try, a, they, they want to find a way to extend. I'll trial the corticosteroid, make sure, especially after a few injections, there's no evidence of steroid response. And then, you know, if they leave, I can give them either a triamcinolone injection or a dexamethasone implant or whatever ends up working to kind of extend their treatment intervals. And I actually think that for the right patient, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't have any disclosures for, I mean, I have an alcohol disclosure, but that's, you know, on the surgical side and I don't have an allergen disclosure. But my point is that I, I think we just have to be creative to make sure these patients don't lose treatment. I think the difference between these patients and the neovascular AMD patients, this is an older population on average than the DME population. This is not quite as old a population as the AMD population. And I think that's, I wonder if that's why they're also more likely to be kind of lost in the shuffle versus AMD patients who like, you know, some person, their appointment is the first thing they write in their calendar for each month, I've got to make this appointment. And it'd be interesting to see, we've seen that the loss to follow up for DME and PDR is high comparatively compared to macular generation. There's a couple of big studies from Wells that have looked at that. We don't necessarily have a great data in RVO. And I feel like RVO is almost like the, the redheaded stepchild in some ways when we talk about 
these injecting, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like whenever you go to a meeting, everyone talks about AMD and DME for valid reason. They're the two most common causes of vision loss that is treatable by anti-VEGF. RVO just doesn't get the same love sometimes. And I just wonder, again, if, if because we're not paying necessarily as much attention to it, we're not emphasizing these patients, hey, you need to come in. And it's a slightly younger population. We're losing more of these people. And that's why the vision is kind of diminishing over time. Part of it is our own extension and part of it is missed appointments. But I, I again, apologize that data is out there. I didn't find it on a brief search. I don't think anyone's really looked at that data. I also feel like maybe that data doesn't carry the same impact, quote unquote, for a big journal, just because they don't necessarily have the same, apply the same import to retinal vein occlusion as they do to those other conditions. But it's just something interesting to, to think about with RVO. I don't know if I rambled too much, 3G. No, I get, you know, they kind of, it kind of, um, I wonder if it follows in line with how the trials are done. You know, any new medication, they're going to do the AMD first, and then they're going to go to DME. And then, like you said, RVO is, you know, the third kind of uh, the also ran there. But, um, you know, we see a lot of patients with them. We got a lot of debilitating vision loss. We have a great treatment for it when once there was none. And so, um, they definitely require um, uh, our attention because I've seen, um, you know, if a, especially with a CRVO, if you extend them a little too long, they come back and it looks like they did on presentation. I mean, you get massive amounts of edema and, you know, the flip side of the coin, they respond great. And so they definitely require our attention. Um, but this study kind of shows that maybe we're not giving them enough attention. Maybe we need to kind of um, treat them a little bit more aggressively than we may Pri, I was trying to be really creative and think of some group of three or four where RVO could be like the forgotten third one, but I couldn't think of anything clever. The problem is that if you make it four, it's diabetic retinopathy, and then you have to have kind of have whoever represents diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy be related, which makes it challenging. So then I started thinking of bands where two <laughs> people are related, and I just I just lost my train of thought. But if you have something creative to apply <laughs> to this analogy, this is the time to do it. This is the time to put those SAT skills to to, to test. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have a good analogy for how an RVO is a redheaded stepchild. Uh, I well, guess uh, I'm gonna let you think about I mean, it while I right. talk about the next article. I would, let's how about that? That will be our home. <laughs> We're gonna come up with it in the next ten minutes. <laughs> we can circle back. <laughs> the last the last article is implementation of telemedicine in a retina practice that benefit the patients is worth the effort. Very inspiring words by uh, Dr. Murchiza Adam, my former co-fellow now in practice out in Denver. Uh, we've talked about telemedicine a ton. This is a very short uh, piece, but I, just because we've talked about something a ton does not mean that it's not worth talking about it. And it kind of talks about real world kind of things, what happened and how the people during telemedicine, during COVID-19, very anxious patients were very grateful to, to receive that treatment. Um, we're recording this Father's Day. It's June 21st, 2020. This is going to come out about 10 days or so. Spria, how much telemedicine are you using right now? So compared to a couple months ago, how much telemedicine are you using? Do you feel like your usage in your practice has stayed stable? Has it increased? Has it kind of died off as restrictions have released and patients are coming back in the office? What's been your experience? Great question, Jay. I actually have found that we are not doing as much telemedicine as we used to. Uh, Maryland um, has now, for the most part, opened up. There's still a few restrictions in place, but for the most part, it's rather open and patients are coming in. Um, now, we obviously offer them telemedicine and we're trying to, to, to do all of the social distancing protocols and pretty much all of those um, we're really trying. But I also find that it's very variable for the clinic and the population that I'm in. So, for example, 
example, in one of my clinics with a predominantly older AMD population, those patients just want to come in. They, they honestly, it's the only time they get out of the house. They enjoy it and uh, they want to come in for their injection and then they leave. Whereas in my more inner city population, uh, those patients actually don't want to come in. They're much more afraid um, and it's a much more indigent population and they're actually much more amenable to telemedicine, which is something that I, I didn't really expect when we rolled this out. But I found that overall my, my telemedicine uh, encounters have dramatically dropped. I hear a lot from patients that they are trying to get all of their appointments in right now out of fear of the second wave. So I think that's part of it. I don't think that everyone necessarily feels incredibly safe right now, but um, they're trying to just get in and get their treatment and, and, and get their eye exams, get all of their medical care taken care of because everyone here is afraid of a second wave. It's interesting. We don't have to go into politics and regional differences, but I, I think it's interesting because I think your population in Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area, uh, potentially a more educated population, potentially a, a population that's reading a lot more what's going on in the media, which is suggesting that. I don't necessarily know if I've heard the same things down here, uh, not that our patients aren't educated, but maybe there just isn't the same belief in that, that second wave coming. But uh, I, at least I don't sense that pressure from, from many of our patients. Um, Sriji, what's been kind of your telemedicine and patient experience uh, of the last, let's say, week or two? I think um, something that Priya brought up, which I've seen a lot of, is patients have been anxious to come back in. Um, certainly the patients that were getting injections and wanting to get back on schedule, but even people just for regular eye exams, I think uh, to some extent people are looking to uh, resume their routine health care. Mm. And so we've definitely offered telemedicine. And Jay, we've talked about this before, how about how it can be tough to kind of cram telemedicine into retina practices. Um, so I wasn't using it too much to begin with, but right now most of my patients have expressed interest in actually coming in for in-person evaluations. Um, and, you know, that's including understanding the, the, the risks of, you know, coming to Nashville or coming to a center for, you know, referring COVID patients. And even so they, they want to come on in, get their, you know, OCTs and their in-person evaluations and whatnot. And so we've certainly been doing telemedicine a lot less, um, again, it, it remains to be seen um, if there's increased risk moving forward, how that changes. But right now, patients are, you know, they're coming in pretty much uh, almost back to 100% of our normal volumes. You know, I think um, I have been shocked still by how many people I will meet. I just said that maybe people aren't concerned, but I still still have patients who they've come in maybe for one or two post-op or injection or follow-up appointments since March. And they've told me that those are the only two times they left their house in the last, since early March. Uh, and it's very humbling. And it kind of, like as you said, both of you said how much people value their vision and the fears that still exist. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, we are doing some telemedicine. Um, I don't, but I, I agree with Priya. I think that, and, and Shruj, you kind of mentioned this, I think people are, again, are kind of seeing this as a lull, as a chance to get in. I actually think that our telemedicine, at least in the retina side, telemedicine demand has kind of decreased versus in-person visits. but. Um, we'll see how that changes again. Hopefully there is not a second wave, but if there is a second wave, um, yeah, we'll see. You'll see. I think the next couple months will be very fascinating. Uh, I, I, I worry that this is kind of the calm before another storm, but uh, only time will tell. Uh, did you guys, off topic, I was having this conversation. Did you guys ever read uh, Jurassic Park, the book, not, not just the movie? <laughs> you can't read a movie. I, I, I guess you can't read a movie, but 
think we used to read the script. <laughs> I, I didn't read the book, but I definitely watched the movies. <laughs> Sri, did you ever read the book? I think I did. I think I read that one or The Lost World or both. Lost World is really bad. Um, um, yeah, that's what, that's what I remember. I'm wondering if that's the one I remember. God. So The Lost World is her background. I think Michael Crichton, who was a physician who also wrote these books, The Lost World was a total cash grab. I think the makers of Jurassic Park came back to him and told him to write the book so that they could make a sequel based on the book. Um, and that made sense based on my memory of The Lost World. I remember it not being very good. The reason I bring up Jurassic Park, it's interesting. There's this character that Jeff Goldblum played in the movie, the Ian Malcolm mathematician character. Um, and he talks about chaos theory and nature and all those things. But the book has this section. Doesn't really. The movie never really has a down moment. It's just like as soon as things start going bad in the park, everything just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse until it gets better. That's like your classic movie. It's like there aren't really lulls, but in the book, it things get really bad. And all of a sudden it looks like things are under control and it seems like everything under control, but you're reading the book and you're like, well, I still have this many pages left. This doesn't make any sense. And he kind of gives this speech about how in nature there are lulls before things get worse. Like things are rarely like up and down. It's, it's usually kind of a sawtooth pattern. Um, anyway, I think about that sometimes when I think about where we are, hopefully I'm wrong, but, and hopefully he was wrong too. Uh, but I, I do worry a little bit. So do we, do we figure out an analogy before we go it, for RVO? I have a couple. Oh, man, I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> no, I have a good memory. <laughs> I, I have at least 15 minutes of short-term memory left in my brain. Um, so one of the thoughts I had was, um, is RVO the Ringo star of the injectable drugs where Lennon is AMD? Uh, McCartney should be AMD. Lennon can be DME and Harrison's like diabetic retinopathy. I don't know. That's a poor analogy. Um, but if we transition to sports, which is much more in my wheelhouse, then I wonder, since The Last Dance just aired, is RVO the Luke Longley of the Chicago Bulls of injectable medications? That is my thought process. Uh, kind of boring, always there. Don't really hear much from them. I don't know. I'm struggling, guys. You guys impossible aren't helping. To forget. With these impossible to forget. <laughs> impossible to forget. All right, guys. I appreciate your time. Uh, I hope you guys stay safe. Uh, we will be hopefully having basketball back soon, end of July, assuming there's no second wave. And then I'll torture Priya with tons of questions about basketball <laughs> while she waits for football get season the to basketball start. Basketball questions. Yeah, I always get the basketball questions and. Did they sign no Dak Prescott, by the way? Like. I, I haven't even been following. Did they actually give him his extension? Sorry, what was your question? I have Dak Prescott. Did the Cowboys sign him? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, my gosh. If my cousin listens to this, she's not going to be happy. I have well, I'm absolutely totally no going to send it to your cousin. I, even I don't even know who your cousin is, but I'll find I know. him. Uh, <laughs> how many Sharmas can there be? Sharma Vicarias, I'll find somebody. Um, he, he is signing his franchise tag one year, $31.4 million yeah, tender. $31 million. Oh, good for him. He's, wow. now the seventh, he's now the seventh highest paid quarterback uh, in the NFL. That is surprising wow. that there are six people paid more than him, and some of them should definitely not be paid more than him. Good God. Yeah, they need to level set quarterback pay. Oh, my uh, goodness. Kind of so, like, some of, these, some of these make sense. Like, Russell Wilson, okay, Aaron Rodgers, okay. You know, Ben Roethlisberger, he's old, but I mean, you can understand when he signed that contract. Carson Wentz, you're starting to be like, mm. Kirk Cousins, you're like, oof. Jared Goff, oh, Jared 33.5 Goff. million a year. That's rough, man. 
Yeah. Outlier. Outlier. Sorry, Ali, if you're listening. It probably is the, the single-handed the reason the Rams have to dismantle their entire team. It's because they thought their quarterback was better than he was. That's usually a mistake. Um, anyway, th- guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on and uh, stay safe and uh, hope to see you at some point in the far off future, probably in person. Sounds good. Thanks for having us, Jay. Take care. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Jay. As always, you can find this episode on prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 244 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. In addition, uh, you can subscribe on the website to get updates on the most recent episodes by clicking on the subscribe link and plugging in your information. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, I also like to find the episodes on our podcast app on our mobile devices. That will give you updates as episodes come out. Remember, you can always contact us by emailing us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Remember, uh, we really appreciate the reviews you leave. If you leave reviews, uh, that will help us quite a bit. Remember, all articles you heard here in this episode can be found on the Retinal Physician website at www.retinalphysician.com. Many thanks to Dodgers Vicaria and Patel for joining me for this episode. Thanks to Jen Ford and the team at Penn Division for providing these articles in advance. Thank you to Dr. Louis Kahn, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Mike Vinacasa for providing the production and social media for this episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you're reading published, the conversations you inspire here each week, and for taking such great care of your patients. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>